Welcome to the Bridgetown Church Podcast. In this episode, Jonathan Tremaine Thomas talks with author and speaker Pete Portal on a vision for justice and mercy and how the Spirit empowers us for mission. We would like to caution you as you listen that there will be references to violence, drug use, and addiction, including brief language. I'm here today with Pete Portal, the author of No Neutral Ground and part of the core leadership team of Tree of Life, a 24-7 prayer community in Manenberg, South Africa. Pete, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. It's great to be here. Well, we're just so honored to have you and really looking forward to hearing your story. Tell me a little bit about uh, your upbringing. Where are you from and how did God bring you into the work that you're doing today? Yeah, so um, I'm from London originally, London, England, um, but have, as you say, been in South Africa for the last 14 years, hence the slightly mixed up accent. But um, I grew up in a middle class home. Um, We weren't Christian, so to speak, but we were kind of middle of the road Anglican, I suppose. Um, I grew up knowing all of the sort of Church of England stuff, but um, had no relationship with Jesus. Um, Got saved after getting in a fight in a kebab shop, uh, age 15. We had, um, (laughs) funny story actually, we had, uh, me and a couple of mates, I was at boarding school and we had found, um, you know, at the back of those lads mags, um, they have like little fake ID um, things that you can order. So we all ordered fake IDs and filled them in, uh, went out um, on a pub crawl, um, overindulged somewhat, ended up in the uh, takeaway shop and ended up, long story short, getting in a fight with the manager of one of these pubs. And um, a guy in the corner split us up and, you know, sort of sorted it all out. And I kind of walked home with a bloodied nose and dented ego. And uh, my mum, I think, realized that I was uh, going off the rails in a very sort of uh, cosseted middle class way. There's nothing particularly uh, bad. but um packed me off to Christian camp and the next week this was so I turn up and had my what was it what was it Nokia 5110 you know those old bricks of sure. for building houses turn that off because I was mortally embarrassed that I was going on a church thing and you know didn't want any friends texting me on the on the way and the guy with the clipboard at the door to the bus ticking our names off was the same guy in the takeaway shop the week before who had split me up from this fight. Wow. And I had no particular grid for it then, but like the way I'd say is my soul kind of sank and my spirit leapt as I, something in me recognized there's something unique going on here. I didn't have any Mm. grid for it though. Went to this Christian youth camp, met a whole bunch of uh, people my age who, seemed fairly comfortable in their own skin, had a level of humility that was actually attractive and I certainly didn't have, and heard the gospel of Mark preached and was just like, where do I sign up? Um, so went back home, told my folks, told my school friends that I'd uh, been saved and all of this sort of thing and you know, met with the, uh, the ice-cold British cynicism that you would expect. <laughs> Um, but fast forward a couple of years, was then at university in Edinburgh in Scotland, studying a master's in religious studies. I just figured I was a Christian. I didn't know what else to do. Uh, so I just did that. And um, it was at the end of a lecture in my third year that a friend of mine came up to me and he said, um, hey, Pete, I'm leading this mission trip to South Africa. Do you want to come along? 
And to be honest, I was still going through what I thought was my cool phase, um, which, which is never a cool phase in retrospect, right? Looking right. back, but, <laughs> but it was a Christian union trip. And I thought, oh, no way I want to go with those people. You know, they were getting like um, T-shirts with Jesus written on it and all this sort of, all the standard caricature, cringe stuff that Christians tend to do. And so I said to him, absolutely no way. I'm sorry, I'm not interested. But then he played the kind of the, the, the Christian trump card, as it might, as you might call it. And, and he just goes, well, will you at least pray about it? And I thought, damn it, I, I, of course I have to now. I can't be like, <laughs> no, I refuse. Right. So I prayed about going on this, this short-term mission trip and um, I sort of mumbled a prayer, no particular answer that I can remember, except a week later I get a letter in the post from the National Health Service, you know, um, the amazing free healthcare system in the UK that we love to moan and groan about in England. And um, it was... Uh, scheduling the date of a shoulder operation that I had to have for a dislocating shoulder. And it was smack bang in the middle of this proposed six-week mission trip. So I went back to my friend, told him, listen, I think God's answered me. Here's this letter. And he goes, well, why don't you give them a call? I said, you can't give them a call. What do you mean give them a call? He said, just give them a call and see if they can move this operation date. So I said, fine, okay, whatever. Picked up the phone, phoned the shoulder consultant secretary, and immediately clocked this different accent that I didn't recognize. And I said, um, I'm just phoning to see if it's possible to change this operation date. She goes, you can't do that. This is the NHS, you know, that's great healthcare, but it's very, very, uh, what's the word? Not very flexible. And I said, well, hang about, a friend wants me to go on a trip. And she goes, oh, a trip where? And I said, South Africa. She goes, oh, I'm from South Africa. What sort of trip? I said, like a Christian mission trip. She goes, oh, I'm a Christian. You know, whereabouts in South Africa? I said, Oh, it's a town called Pearl outside Cape Town. I hadn't heard of it. I assume she wouldn't have done. She goes, oh, no, no, I'm from Pearl. And then she goes, forgive me for saying this, but I think God might want you to go on this trip. <laughs> and you're thinking, no, yeah. that's not what I want to hear. Another one of those moments where your heart sinks and your spirit leaps and you realize that there's something that God is doing here. So I put on the T-shirt, swallowed my pride, and went on this trip. <laughs> and... um you know, like looking back, we were all in our early 20s. We had embarrassingly uh, British views on what was right and wrong. You know, uh, we can talk about it later, I'm sure. But, you know, sort of cultural loyalties over kingdom loyalties, shall we say. Right. I'd packed all my shorts and T-shirts because I was off to Africa, of course. But it was the uh, winter in the Western Cape, so I was just freezing for six weeks. And... We were working with a pastor there who had come out of gangs and drugs. He had actually been a general in what is called the Hard Living Gang, the largest gang in the Western Cape. And um, he, uh, we were driving from this township that we were living in. A township is a place where people were forcibly removed by the white supremacist apartheid government during uh, uh, apartheid, which is Afrikaans for separateness. So literally a theologically grounded or rooted project uh, separating people of different races and using a warped heretical theology to justify it. And we are in one of these townships, staying in a house there, commuting to a prison called Drakenstein Prison, uh, previously called Victor Vestere Prison, where Mandela was released in 1990. And we were going, in theory, to, quote, share the gospel with prison gangsters, right? A bunch of white, 18 to 21 year olds uh, doing theological studies from Edinburgh. And we sat with these guys and heard story after story of uh, violence, trauma, um, 
poverty, systemic injustice, um, things that would, you know, absolutely horrific. And we would go back each day and weep and weep and weep. And there are two, as you often get in a uh, mission trip, there are two particularly intense types. And they said, listen, there's a, we were in this three bedroom house. There are nine of us, five guys, four girls. So they said, let's put all the guys in one bedroom, all the girls in another. And the third bedroom can be a 24 seven prayer room. I thought, what on earth is that? I said, oh, it's where you pray night and day. And I thought, that's incredibly intense. Um, and a questionable use of a third bedroom, quite honestly. Um, but every day, at the end of the day, we'd come back from this sort of horror show of a prison ministry, <laughs> just carrying secondary trauma and complete guilt and disorientation with what is life even about and we just weep and weep and weep in this prayer room in this township and we achieved honestly very little of any lasting worth except that on that trip as a what would I have been 22 year old I believe God deposited his heart in me for um, a demographic of uh, township teenagers and young men hooked on crystal meth and heroin um, whom apartheid had thrown out in the 60s and were just just replaying the trauma and the crime and the violence today. And I just thought, what if I could come back, move in, share home, listen, and then potentially share Jesus with such guys? And then I just, I became completely fixated with that vision. Um, no one in London thought it was a great idea. I was working in kids' TV at the time. We were working out how to kind of gunge parents on the live TV show and assemble giant pogo sticks and that sort of thing. It was great fun, but it wasn't what I thought was my calling. And I realized that God had shown me something and agitated me and that therefore it wasn't anyone else's responsibility. It was my responsibility to respond. And so I packed my bags and in... 2009, beginning of 2009, uh, moved back for what I thought was going to be two years. It's interesting. You, you mentioned the role of prayer, and, and you may have mentioned this without realizing what you were saying, but you, you said you would go into the prayer room and weep. Yeah. And one of the things that I've often seen in the justice work is that the tears that God gives often lead to your destiny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about, you, you said God agitated you. It was a mm. holy agitation. Mm. How, did, how did you recognize, no, this isn't just kind of uh, a, a human sorrow. This is a godly sorrow that, that moved you into that work. You know, I, I didn't even have that paradigm at the time. I, I wouldn't have even known the difference probably at that point. Um, I can say it was God now, 14 years later, as you know, the testimonies of the unfolding story, you know, retrospect is perfect vision type thing. But at the time, all I knew was that I was just worked up. I was angry. You know, it's, and you hear all these things, you know, say, well, your anger in the world's need meat. That's your calling and all of this sort of thing. But, but ultimately I had no idea about that. I just, all I knew is, you know, we, we had been broken into staying in that house. We, I had been mugged by a bunch of guys 
off their faces on drugs. We had been, um, we'd heard the gunshots. We'd driven into the center of Cape Town and seen this racially schizophrenic city. I mean, Cape Town is the most racially segregated city in South Africa, which is the most economically unequal country on earth. So we had been thrust into the deep end without really knowing it. You know, we kind of Googled Cape Town before we went and saw, saw sort of wine farms, beaches, mountains, all look very nice. And here we were, as I say, at the deep end of this global inequality, of systemic and racial injustice, of whilst the rule and law of apartheid had been dismantled in 94 by Mandela and the rest of them, the spirit of apartheid lived on. And I just... I was just so wound up by that because when you consider the percentage, the high percentage of confessing Christians in the Western Cape and the rest of South Africa and the fact that, for example, 9% minority of the country is white and yet owns 57% of the land, you think, like, what are the, uh, God, give me some language and give me some theological grounding for a tr- making all things new in this in this city and in this country. And so in my early 20s, I, as I say, I, I just kind of groaned and moaned and wept and lamented and recognized something of the spirit, but I didn't have the words mm-hmm. or the paradigm to recognize really much beyond that. So you, you pack up your bags, you're carrying now this supernatural burden from the Lord. First of all, when you go back to pack your bags, how did your family react to... Hey, I'm 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 going. I'm I'm leaving everything that I know here and I'm going to one of the worst places on earth in terms of inequality, everything you were just saying. Right. W- what was that like and and where did you start once you arrived? So yeah, my family, I think, you know, they I think they thought oh this is a phase, you know, sort of let him kind of get it out of his system type thing. Uh which, you know, fair enough. Like, I, I get that. Um, because honestly, the, the, the vision I was casting was complete fantasy. I just wanted to get back and get stuck in and move into the township and just kind of learn from people who, you know, the world had kind of put last. Um, but yeah, I, uh, myself and a friend, the friend who organized that short-term trip, we, we moved back and, um, were then introduced to a ministry in this community, Mannenberg, uh, which was looking at discipling high-risk youth, 18 to 25-year-old guys in gangs, drugs, and living lives of violent crime. And so we would prayer walk every Tuesday and Thursday. We'd prayer walk for two hours, so four hours a week over the course of a year, you know, hundreds of hours of prayer, walking the streets, getting to know the language, seeing the different gang territories, crossing over them, chatting to people, praying for the sick to be healed, sort of putting our hands on gang leaders' houses and praying for the households to be saved and making a lot of cringeworthy errors along the way. But, you know, just trying to immerse ourselves in the reality that um, I, I had come to love but knew very little about. That sounds a lot to me like taking a survey of the land. Um, right you know, putting your feet to the ground, getting in proximity, you see what's happening. Mm. And from there, the Lord begins to highlight people, places, yeah. needs. What what begin to happen? 
Well, we met we- uh, uh, men and women of peace. You know, I think of a particular story of um, a woman of peace who used to be one of the hard living gang sort of mother figures. And um, <laughs> they would use her to hide guns to go into court so that for high profile gang related uh, cases, they knew they had some firearms in court if need be. And wow. she had got radically saved out of Islam. I mean, sadly, she's she's uh, passed away now of sort of natural causes. But um, she, you know, she was one of my earliest memories of going into her house and just seeing how she would mother these young fatherless and motherless men really into um, faith and uh, and just disciple them. Um, yeah, men and women of peace all over. Uh, a friend, Jonathan, who grew up in Manenberg, and we would just walk and talk. And he taught me to say when people would say, "Hey, Whitey, what mark Jahisa? What are you doing here?" He said, "You just reply to them, or looping, but we're just, we're just walking and praying." And he said, "Don't talk to anybody unless they talk to you. Don't go up to people as that white." missionary savior type and sort of say, if God could do one thing in your life today, what would it be? You Mm. know, if someone asks you a question, go up to them. They're inviting you on their terms. But otherwise, but we're just walking and praying. Wow. That's really, that's really good advice. Right. (laughs) Really good advice. And so eventually you became a man of peace, right? After, after walking those streets and, um, you ran into a young man named Dwayne. Yeah, right. Um, so, so Jonathan introduced me to Dwayne. Dwayne at the time was, I think, 19. He was on heroin uh, and crystal meth and was, um, you know, affiliated with the hard livings loosely. And then his family were affiliated with other gangs. So he was kind of torn between different gangs. Um, and you know, um, it's his story to tell a lot of that, but he was, you know, fit perfectly into the demographic of high-risk youth, shall we say. And um, he he just said, you know, I, I really need to kick heroin and I can't. Like, do you know how? And I just thought like, well, I mean, I've heard, you know, we I, I'd read um, uh, Jackie Pullinger's books from, you know, Chasing the Dragon and uh, and we had been to visit her in Hong Kong quite recently and been to one of their Healing Your Past, Releasing Your Future conferences, which really went into all that, the, the inner healing stuff. And um, so I just thought, well, yeah, no, I, I, I'm pretty sure Jesus can beat heroin. Um, so we had a 24-7 prayer room and myself and Jonathan decided we would uh, lie next to Dwayne uh, one of us would take it in turns every other evening and he would lie there. And when he woke up uh, in withdrawal pain, we'd just speak in tongues. He then received the gift of tongues, would start speaking in tongues. The pains would go, he'd go back to sleep. And we did that for about seven to 10 days. Uh, and that was how he detoxed originally. And so that was amazing. And so, you know, I just thought, well, this is easy. You know, we, we then had a guy um, knock, uh, knock on the door of our house one day whilst we were praying for other people. And I thought, oh, for goodness sake, you know, we're praying, we're about the, the Lord's business, like get out, you know. And he just said, I'm so sorry to bother you, brother, but, but I just had this voice in my head as I was walking past your house saying, I need to knock on this door and go and ask them how to receive Jesus in my life. And honestly, I was just like, cool, come on in. That's exactly what we're doing right here. We'd pray for him and he left, you know, sort of beaming from ear to ear. Um, and, I, and again, I just thought this is too easy. Like, are you joking, Lord? Like, what? But gradually, 
Dwayne and this other man and others that we had um, uh, introduced to Jesus and who'd, you know, I think of another guy, he had grown up as a, uh, a Christian but become a Muslim. Uh, he was the gunman or the assassin for the Americans gang. The Americans, I'm sorry to say, is the second largest gang in uh, Manenberg and um, the main rivals of the hard livings. And he was on a sort of uh, 3,000 rand a week habit uh, of crystal meth and really the personal assassin for one of the local Americans leaders, you know, kneecapping guys in car parks and all the rest of it and just deeply, deeply traumatized as you'd imagine. And he came to faith and then took his original Christian name and was going great guns and just loving, loving life. But gradually we saw each one of these young men fade away when, you know, we actually had nothing better to offer them. And it was it was something someone once then subsequently said to me was, if you want to get somebody to leave a gang, you better be damn sure you've got be something better for them to join. Mm. And so we were getting them to leave gangs and to rescind their essentially blood covenants, right? And demonic covenants to these demonic brotherhoods. Right. And kind of just leaving a void. And then guess what? Months later, yeah, we saw these miraculous deliverances, but we just saw guys going straight back into all of it. And it was then that I started praying, Lord, won't you give me a home in Manenberg that I can move into and we can live together and actually kind of um, cultivate a redemptive brotherhood where we pray night and day and when we're sharing food, sharing trauma, sharing stories. And um, it just seemed the most realistic and reasonable thing to do. So that was what I did. Uh, I sent an email to everybody in my uh, email address book just saying, I believe God's uh, he's put on my heart that I'm to move in, it move into Manenberg. So at this time, at the, at the time I wasn't yet living there and, um, I need 20,000 pounds. Who's up for it? Com hopelessly unaccountable, had nobody kind of overseeing like anything, <laughs> but over the course of eight months, 208,200 Rand came in. Now, just to give you an idea of this at the time, it was 10 Rand to the pound, right? So I needed 200,000 Rand. And 208,200 came in. So I'm like, okay, what's that all about? I bought this house that was on the, on the market for 200,000 Rand. 8,000 Rand, I was told, would sort it, the, the attorney's fees to put it into my name. 208,000. I had this extra 200 Rand, which is 20 pounds, $25, whatever. And I thought, what's this about? Moved in. I remember on the 1st of May, 2010, moved in, turned on the lights, and nothing happened. Because um, crystal meth addicts had stripped all the copper wiring out of the, you know, the walls. And my friend Jonathan walks in about an hour later. He goes, I'll tell you what, give me 200 rand and I can wire the house for you. And at that moment, I realized 208,200 rand over eight and a half months of fluctuating exchange rates and bank charges. And God paid down to the last cent all I needed to move in. I moved in with this young guy, Dwayne, who was relapsing and then coming back and then getting clean and relapsing, et cetera. And honestly, I lasted six months. We were broken into six times, about once a month. Um, I'd held up, I was held up by a bunch of guys with guns and um, it was a horror show, honestly. I was deeply traumatized and depressed. And um, again, I remember very clearly on the 17th of September, 2010, I remember the last thing I had left was my laptop because everything else had been stolen. Uh, and I said to Dwayne later on, I said to him recently, actually, a, a couple of months ago, I said, yeah, but you never got my laptop, did you? He goes, and he started laughing. And he goes, what do you mean? I said, well, I moved it from place to place every evening. 
And he goes, I knew exactly where your laptop was every day. I just knew that the moment I stole that, the game was over. <laughs> wow. So 17th of September, 2010, I'm writing in my laptop uh, where I was keeping a sort of running journal. Lord, I will plant my, I will nail my feet to the ground here. I'll, I'll, I'll plant my roots here for the rest of my life. I'm so happy to do that. But the one thing I ask is that you would give me a radical wife to do this with. That was at about 4.30 in the afternoon, closed my laptop, packed a bag, said, Dwayne, I'm off for the weekend. I'm done. You know, burn the house down, do whatever you want. I'm finished. And about eight o'clock that evening, Sarah and I met and uh, we've been married 11 years now. Incredible. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely yeah, yeah, incredible. Yeah. So what kept you in the house with Dwayne? through that trauma, through, through the robberies. Cause I assume he was, his lifestyle was attracting those elements, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. He was playing me and, but it, the short answer is codependency. I needed him to legitimize my life and calling somehow. He needed me to kind of feed off. Wow. It was, it, it was so dysfunctional, but there was this deep, deep brotherly love as well. You know, um, if he left, I was a sitting duck on my own in a house in Manambo. I needed him. But if I left, he knew that it was just free fall. Back to the gangs, back to drugs. So we both loved each other deeply and used each other completely. Yeah. Is it, is it possible that that is happening in missions in many contexts? <laughs> <laughs> Do you think? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, of course. I mean, it's easy to make sweeping statements, isn't it? But right. let's be honest, if you're in the mission world, um, you need to have some testimonies and some spicy stories and exotic stories from the mission field to send back to your sending church and supporting partners. You know, I remember going to churches and, you know, essentially you go and you swap exciting stories for money. You essentially prostitute a move of God based on your financial needs. Mm. You go begging with a spirit of poverty to people who um, are kind of bored in their suburban church. And it's like, oh, great, come and agitate us a bit and we'll pay you for it. You know, like at its worst, but what I'm realizing now is actually, no, no, there's this wonderf wonderful kingdom opportunity for us to be able to say, listen, God's doing something unique and beautiful in Manenberg, and don't you want to know about it? And you know what? We haven't got any resource. You've got loads of it. Let's get together. This could be some kingdom thing. So the thing is, it's a very thin line between a kind of uh, 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 manipulative transactional thing or a deep generative kingdom relationship. And the key, of course, is heart agenda and motivation because it can look exactly the same, those two completely different scenarios on the surface. But if people's hearts are right and there's genuine, trusting, vulnerable relationship, then actually, you know, it's a gift to be able to go and say, you've got money, we need it. We've got some agitative, beautiful supernatural stories that maybe can spark something in your church. You know, that is a kingdom relationship. Right. But when we're using it to manipulate or a codependency in order just to keep the show on the road, yeah, absolutely, nightmare. So how, how did that shift? What shifted in your heart to get you into a healthier place of, of fidelity in mm. the work? Mm. Um, I think realizing that this is all God's ministry. He was much more committed to it than we were. 
you know, all the stock phrases of he doesn't order what he can't pay for and all of that. But actually a book that was incredibly formative for me was uh, Henry Nouwen's book, The Spirituality of Fundraising. And it just blasts out of the water the power dynamics that the world uses to leverage things and, 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 and exposes just a kingdom heart behind these, um, the, the possibilities of, of, you know, if you can get over using rich people for what they've got and if rich people can get over leveraging what they've got for a say in your ministry mm. and if the work can be done on both sides. And I actually read through it with a couple of people who um, – uh, donate to Tree of Life and talked it through. And, you know, like I, I think you need as vulnerable and transparent relationships with those funding as you do with those on the ground with you. Um, it's all kingdom. So when when Sarah comes into the picture, mm. does she enter into this kind of hostile, volatile, volatile environment or... What, what, what shifted and what did she bring uh, to help you in carrying this mission? Well, Sarah is a remarkable person and, you know, like raises the bar on radical and beautiful in the same way. The way I describe her is she's uh, soft as feathers and hard as nails. She's just astonishing human being. And she, at the time, had just graduated from university in international relations. And her passion was uh, child soldiers in the Congo. So we, the, the first evening we bonded, we uh, bonded over the Coltan crisis in the Congo and the Middle East conflict and our, dis, uh, 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 our frustration with suburban manifestations of white Christianity and, you know, whether it was okay for Christians to smoke and all of these things. And we just sat there just bonding over all these things and realizing, oh my goodness, you too? Really? And I said, listen, like, come to Manenberg, come and meet Cape Towns, essentially child soldiers, 20 minutes down the road. And the interesting thing was, and Sarah tell, you know, tells this story herself, there was a greater block or resistance or fear in her traveling to Manenberg 20 minutes down the road as there were traveling you know, seven hours north to Goma DRC to work with child soldiers. And that is the, the spirit of fear that prevails in particularly the white population of South Africa. Um, and the, I mean, maybe it's a, well, it's definitely a provocative term, the brainwashing that has gone on in certain suburbs around places you do not go. And if you do go there, frankly, it's your fault if anything happens to you. Mm. And that was what she had been brought up with and had actually, to be fair, witnessed a whole bunch of trauma done to friends and people she knew. Um, and so had, you know, she had her, her, her own journey of, um, following the Lord's voice to Manenberg. But what we knew was that it couldn't be, she couldn't be surfing my wave. It had to be her own revelation. And um, yeah, so, you know, 10 years later, we're still there doing it. And that's, that's home. So tell me what it looks like today. Um, how has the community formed through this mission? And what would you say to a congregation or a community like Bridgetown that's really facing many of those same fears. You know, what does it look like for us to, to be, uh, to go into those places and to follow the leading of the Spirit into places where, frankly, it could be dangerous. Mm. Safety isn't guaranteed. Mm. It is one of the things that I've said to, to our team that, you know, Jesus says, lo, I send you out as sheep among wolves. 
Uh, so that's that's not a very beautiful picture, mm. but there's beauty in following Jesus. So I, I know I've said a lot of a lot of questions there, but what does it look like today? And and what have you learned? What are you learning in the in the process? What it looks like today is um, we, you know, the, the home that Dwayne and I, the, the conviction that sharing homes and sharing lives and sharing money and resources and praying together and worshiping together and depending on a move of the spirit for sobriety and healing and more than sobriety, actually the, you know, because drugs are just the the top level is drugs are and gangs are basically young men and women in Manenbergs and probably around the world's best attempt at trying to self-medicate from the agony of the lived experience they're going through. And so we talk about drugs and gangs being the problem. No, 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 no. Drugs and gangs are an imperfect solution that people grasp at in or- because there's nothing else. Right. And so we have to explain and show and model, oh, there is something else. And more than that, his name's Jesus. And my goodness, he's so interested in getting you off drugs. But he's so interested, much more arguably, in introducing yourself to who he created you to be in the first place. So anyone who comes, we've got a home for uh, uh, young men in gangs and drugs called Crew 62. And that's a small block of flats across the road from where Sarah and I live, literally 20 meters away. Uh, because we outgrew our home. We did originally just open our home for guys coming out of gangs and drugs. Um, But by 2019, we had guys, bags packed, knocking on our gate in tears, saying, we're from such and such gang. We've heard that we can come and get free here. Can't we come and live with you too? And we just said, no, there's no room. So we started praying for the block of flats across the road. They sold it to us, praise God. Someone gave us money. Um, and, um, so we have capacity now for up to about 14 young men. Um, and we've got a home for abused mothers and their children down on another Avenue, um, which is called Basilla, which just means brave, strong, and free. And these women, um, come and really go through a similar process. And so we've got these two residential ministries that are the, the, the center of our church, our covenant community. And this would be one of the things that I would say to a church like Bridgetown is we got to go beyond just tolerating those on the margins. We put those the world puts last first, not because that makes us more noble, but because that's what Jesus commanded us to do. And because if those people can be the center of covenant community, then we will begin to see our covenant community answering the questions that these people agitate us to talk about. What I'm trying to say is choose people, not issues, and then the issues will choose themselves. But unless we're willing to go beyond tolerating to celebrating and establishing at the center of covenant community, then what will happen is we'll go on being a nice middle-class church, doing good works, etc., saying all the right stuff, listening to podcasts like this, but actually not much shifting. Right. And if things can't shift in our local congregation, then we shouldn't even try and shift things outside of our local congregation, right? Absolutely. Um, and so, um, yeah, we, we just try and, we, if you're uh, addicted and coming out of gangs, and if you're abused and you've got children, a, a young mother, we say, come and be part of church. The fact of the matter is, um, it was chatting to Pete Gregg years ago, um, 
Pete Gregg um, founded 24-7 Prayer and came to Manenberg and helped us think through some of our ecclesiology. This was probably, yeah, 10 years ago. And I said to him, the fact is, Pete, Manenberg is a community of 80,000 people with 300 churches. The one thing Manenberg doesn't need is another church. This is when we were doing a kind of identity migration from NGO doing sort of office hour services to church community, right? Which again, on the surface looks the same, but it's night and day compared, you know. And he just said, um, okay, first thing, make sure you don't steal, any un- don't steal anyone else's Christians. Second thing, if you can make sure you're making a measurable difference in the lives of the poor, the oppressed, the addicted, and the marginalized, and if those are the people that you are welcoming into church, and that is where your church growth comes from, and if you're genuinely tra- seeing lives transformed and committing to live, live sh- sharing life together and the power of the spirit and the systemic prophetic speaking into systems, he said, honestly, every community needs more of them. I thought, great, we'll do it. We'll use the C word. And we called ourselves church. I think that is so critical because the congregational model has been called church and mm. has been the, the um, preeminent expression of church for so long, mm. particularly here in the West, mm. that it feels like God is shifting us into a more mature expression of yeah. of of the church yeah. and of his heart in these in these ways and it really takes us being willing to reevaluate what we call fruitfulness or what we call success mm-hmm. and from what i understand you have a book coming out soon uh, about some of those those issues Right. I mean, so success is, you know, we're all fixated on success, like whether we admit it or not. Um, And, um, you know, I I think back to a meeting that Sarah and I had with a a funder once and they they asked us, we were sitting across the table, like you you and I are now, and Sarah was next to me and this funder said to us, so tell me, Crew 62, Tree of Life, what's your success rate? And my heart sank. Because wow. it's a core wound of mine, honestly. Like, what have you got to show for your life? You're unsuccessful. You know, like comparison with other people, you know, fueled by doom scrolling on social media. You know, I'm still probably too immature to use Instagram responsibly, <laughs> if I'm honest. But Sarah just looks at this guy and she just goes, oh, we're 100% successful. And I kind of gulped and thought, what is she smoking? Like, like how is she going to? essentially lie convincingly about this. And she said, look, the thing is, God never asked us to get anybody off drugs or out of gangs. All he did was say, will you move into Manenberg and open your home to my hurting young men who need help getting out of gangs and drugs? And will you welcome them uh, completely? And will you share my love with them? And will you share your food and your home with them? And she said, we've done that for 60 odd young men and some of them have got free and others haven't. But we're 100% successful. And at that moment, you know, I was just, as I said, Sarah's astonishing. I was just like sort of gobsmacked. I thought that's exactly it, isn't it? Success is faithfulness. Success is not a measurable numerical metric. Um, you know, if, if we look at um, the world, I think is fixated with numbers. But if you look at growth for growth's sake, you think, well, that's the ideology of cancer cells. And yet we're using that to measure church success. 
I remember chatting to an old battle axe of a lady uh, about two hours out of Cape Town uh, about this, about Manenberg and Tree of Life and all of this. And she's been, you know, one of those just been around the block, just no time for any kind of rubbish. And, um, and, and she just, and I, and I was talking to her about all the exciting things happening. And she said, whoa, 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 careful, careful. I said, what? She said, you talk about growth a lot. And I said, yeah, well, we want to grow. We want to multiply the presence of the kingdom and man, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, and, and can talk a good game and all of this, but she's heard all of that before. And she just said, if you grow numerically and Jesus hasn't grown in your midst, then you haven't grown at all. You've merely swelled. And something that is swollen is a sign of pain and ill health and is a problem. So, she, you know, and, and if you read Dallas Willard on this stuff, he talks about, you know, growing through people growing in maturity of prayer. You know, how many church growth specialists will measure growth through spiritual authority? You know, we rather we talk about meeting needs and all that sort of thing. But um, so we are just on a journey of learning that success, you know, why do we pray? Is it to see nations and people transformed? For sure. But if we're only praying for that, then we're missing the point. We pray because Jesus is beautiful. We pray because it's our lifeblood. We pray because we can do nothing else. And if a consequence of that is people and nations changing, praise God. But if that is our driver, then if those things never happen, then we get peed off and bitter and resentful with God as if it's his fault. Uh, one of my favorite theologians, a guy called Stanley Hauerwas, says we don't do it because it's tr- we don't do it because it's effective. We do it because it's true. So nothing we do in Manenberg we do because we think we're effective. We don't try and offer solutions to felt needs as much as we try and live as a prophetic sign of another world breaking in. Now, if people get off drugs and meet Jesus and become who God created them to be, praise God. But if I'm measuring my fidelity to the call of God based on the good decisions of an addict and a gangster, guess what? That's not going to end well. And so these are some of the things we're learning, and we're learning it the hard way. It is a plod, it is slow, but it is glorious. It's exhilarating and exhausting in about equal measure. Um, but yeah, we, we believe that we are successful in that we are asking Holy Spirit at every turn, is this you, Lord? And will you give us enough joy set before us to endure? Wow, what an amazing story and an amazing challenge to us. Um, would, you, would you pray for our community as we close out this time together? For sure. Love to. Holy Spirit, I pray that whoever's listening to this now, wherever in the world they are, whatever they're up to, would you just still their heart? Would you just arrest their spirit with whatever truth that has been spoken right into their hearts, God? You know better than anyone that I have no answers. We don't have answers, but that we are just longing to be faithful to what you've asked us to do. I pray, good shepherd, you who called us to life in its fullness and then told us that that looks like laying down our lives, would you bring a fascination and a deep spirit longing 
in the lives of people in Bridgetown to lay down lives that they, that we might discover life in its fullness. Lord, would you help us to orientate our lives to the narratives of pain that we have chosen to silence and mute? And would you remind us, as Isaiah 58 does, that as we share our food, our homes, our clothes, with our own flesh and blood, that you will make us well-watered gardens, that our righteousness will go before us, that we will call and you will say, here I am. And that actually at the heart of all of this is your prescription for human flourishing. So Holy Spirit, breathe over everybody listening right now and do something new and glorious and messy and disruptive in this church for your kingdom and for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Pete Portal, author of No Neutral Ground, in the upcoming book, How to Be Unsuccessful. Thank you so much for your time. Absolute privilege. Thanks for having me, JT.